0: My joy to uh, get to preach today out of Second Chronicles chapter 26. So if you'll grab your Bibles there and, and, and turn to the Old Testament. If you need a Bible, we have some at the door. We also have sermon note outlines there. If you're a note taker and want to jot down questions or things that you observe in the text today for your further study, pray that that would be a, a blessing for you. Second Chronicles chapter twenty-six. We'll begin with verse one through three. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah who was sixteen years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Loth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jecholiah of Jerusalem. Here we read that Uzziah was 16 years old when crowned king. There was a period of time where he shared the crown with his father before his father passed. But this is a striking fact because In a modern era, most 16-year-olds are having a hard time managing their own bedroom and are nowhere near mature enough to rule a kingdom. But this brings us to our first point. As we see in Scripture, time and time again, God often uses those who seem not a right fit in our eyes. Still, throughout history, we see God use unlikely people. Characters to carry out his plan. Take Moses, for example, in Exodus 3, a very important transition in God's plan of redemption. God sees his people are enslaved, they're toiling day and night, they're building cities and serving a false god in Pharaoh, monuments that declare his fame and, and glory, Pharaoh of Egypt. And God has a plan of redemption, of, of deliverance of his people out of slavery into a place that they can call their own, that they can enjoy God and be fruitful. To do this, God wants a spokesman, a leader, a representative, to take his agenda to the most powerful empire in the world at that time, to go before Pharaoh of Egypt and to declare that he must let the Israelites go. Now, one would think that there would be In the economy of the world, a man that God would choose who's proven, who's studied, who's aggressive, who's well-spoken to be God's voice. We wouldn't think that God would choose a stuttering shepherd with weak self-esteem who's rapidly aging in the latter season of his life. On top of the man who had been recently accused of murder for killing one of Pharaoh's slave drivers in Egypt. But the God of all creation time and time again is going to use someone small, someone average, someone ordinary, someone slow to do great things for God's glory. And let's be honest, if God showed up here today to say, hey, I want a spokesman, identify a spokesman for me, we probably wouldn't push a guy like Moses to the front of that line. We... We definitely probably wouldn't grab one of our 16 year olds and say, Here, use this guy. But what this reveals about you and I is number one, our lack of perspective and sovereign wisdom. But in our nature, we are disposed to elevate the elite and push down the ordinary and the weak. So why then does God, in his perfect wisdom, use the weak, the marginalized, the subpar to do some of his biggest tasks? And the answer, time and time again, is so that when they do, he is the one who receives glory and not man. 2 Corinthians twelve nine: My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Ephesians 2 declares that salvation is God's work alone so that we boast in no one but Him alone. If God is the one who ordains and assigns and provides us the power and the needed skills to deliver, why then are we in our flesh so quick to want credit or to be proud? And this leads us to the next part of our passage in verse 4 and 5. It says that Isaiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. According to all that his father Amaziah had done, he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. It is God who molds and shapes and prepares us for His perfect will for our lives, for what God wants to do with us. And one of the great ways of God's economy that he wants us to be shaped and prepared and molded is through parents. God's given assignment for parents to mold and shape us. Now, in sin, not all parents fulfill this God-given assignment very well. God also in his economy gives us shepherds to teach us the ways of the Lord so that we would rightly fear and know and worship the Lord. So for Uzziah, this was fulfilled in the example of his father, Amaziah, and the prophet, Zechariah. This is still God's economy for us today, that our young ones are molded and shaped by parents and pastors. Just as we talked this last midweek when reviewing and talking through dating and courting, this is our central components to how our young ones are, are formed and shaped and, 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 and grown and matured to make good decisions, that we're accountable, that we value counsel of parents and pastors. God's call on the shepherds of the flock is that they must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that they can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. That's Paul's teaching in Titus 1.9. God's call on children is to obey their parents and for parents to lead and love their children in the Lord. Ephesians 6, 1-4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise that it may go well with you and that you enjoy long life on earth. Fathers, do not exasperate. That basically means provoke or anger your children. Instead, bring them up, which is in context, to rear or to nourish them, both physically and spiritually, to bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. This is the economy by which God wants to shape and mold us for the life he's prepared for us, for his glory and his plan for our lives. But we have a part to play in this, to be obedient to our parents, to seek and sit under the counsel of our shepherds. And it says that Uzziah in his early years did this. It says he set himself to seek God. It challenged our, our students who were in first hour to, How are you intentionally setting yourself to seek God? To begin to own that you're no longer a child. That he, Uzziah also submitted himself to teachers like Zechariah, a spiritual leader in his life at that time, who instructed him, it says, in the fear of the Lord. It says that as long as Uzziah sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Now, we need to stop real quick and bring some clarity to that reality that God made him prosper in his obedience. Because many modern-day teachers or churches will use scriptures like this to promote a prosperity gospel, which is not the gospel. It's a twisted way of teaching God's word to create fanfare and um, to grow followers into a false way of living what what this meant in the old covenant which is its setting was that obedience in the old covenant meant covenant blessing that was the promise of the old covenant that with their obedience god would provide and bless them and they would prosper The economy of the old covenant was one whereby God rewarded obedience with horizontal blessing in that time and land. It was a specific outplay of the old covenant. So as Uzziah was faithful to God in these things, God made him prosper. It's not a covenant that carries over today. The old covenant is replaced by the new covenant. And in case you're feeling a little gypped in that, let me remind you that our blessing is secure In the new covenant, our blessing, those in Christ, is secure in the heavens and is more abundant, the scriptures tell us, than we could ever dream or know. Our blessing is life in Christ. Amen? Let us see that with high value. The old covenant was essentially pointing to the beauty and the workings of the new covenant. For Uzziah and his people, they were blessed because Uzziah, as their king, was faithful because he was focused and he was committed to his parents and his pastors, because he learned to fear the Lord and to obey him. And so God blessed him and their people. Now there's another factor that I want to point out here, because we need to constantly be reminded of who gives us the desire to want to know and do the will of God. It is God. Philippians 2.13, Paul says it so well, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So this is an important foundation for how God works in the economy of his creation because without that understanding, we can begin to go a place we shouldn't go, which which I'll get to in a minute. Let me illustrate with this Modern illustration of a movie that I really love named Rudy. It's a football movie about a young man who desperately wanted to play Notre Dame football. The problem is, Rudy was short, unathletic, and just not nowhere near skilled like the elite who would make the Notre Dame football team in that day. But Rudy scrapped and pushed and pulled and trained and fought and did everything he could so that he could make the practice team for Notre Dame football. It was an amazing season for him and just powerful to see him get there. Spoiler alert, if you've never seen this movie, at the end of the movie, they actually put him into a critical moment in a real game. And I've never really been much to cry, especially at movies, but every time the end of Rudy, I cry. I don't know why. And I didn't even play football, but it's just <laughs> powerful. I love it. But, but here's the point: I, we love to 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 make the moral of that story that look at how hard he worked, look at his diligence, look at it. he never gave up, he never let people tell him something opposite, and there's all these good lessons wrapped up in that. But it, without God in that conversation we begin to lift up individuals as l- look at the work equals the success. But what we have to slow down and do is who put that character, that drive in him? And we got to see that that's the work of God. That that scrappiness, that perseverance, that's a God-given attribute. People sometimes will say, well, uh, that LeBron James or or Michael Phelps are just these crazy natural talents. They just have this natural talent. But but what does that mean? They have a natural talent. That's a secular world's way of trying to say that they have these core athletic abilities to excel and adapt and persevere, to be the best at their game. But, but, But natural talent is a secular world's way of saying Mother Nature gave those abilities to them. But that lady doesn't exist, right? And so even just in our modern thinking, we're giving credit to something that's not even real. God is the author of those things in his creation. This is what we have here in Uzziah. We have to see that Yes, he was obedient. Yes, he sought out these things in God's economy. And yes, that brought great blessing. But God is the one who put Uzziah in motion and framed him and set him up to have these attributes to do these things. Uzziah has been trained and instructed in the fear of the Lord. And this is a framework that sets Uzziah up for victory. But if God is the one who ordains our core talents and training, why then do we so often feel in the victory proud? Or that the credit belongs to us? And and it's a slippery slope, but you, you gotta see where this where this begins to go. Before we see where it goes, let's see a fuller picture of the victory that Uzziah experienced. Look at Second Chronicles 26, 6 through 15 now with me. I'll read verse six again. He went out and made war against the Philistines. And broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabneth and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the territory of Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arbians and against the, those who lived in Gerbul and against the Meunites. The Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt for he became very strong moreover Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle and, the, and he fortified them he built towers in the wilderness and cut out many cisterns for he, he had large herds both in Shephelah and in the plain And he had farmers and vine dressers in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. Moreover, Uzziah had an army of soldiers fit for war in divisions according to the numbers and the muster made by Jeel, the secretary of Masiah, the officer under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's commanders. The whole number of of the heads of fathers of houses of mighty men of valor was 2,600. Under their command was an army of three thousand three hundred and seven thousand five hundred, who could make war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. And Isaiah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, and stones for slinging. In Jerusalem he made machines, invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners, to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, and he was marvelously helped till he was strong. Here we read of all these triumphs and accomplishments and diverse victory and and abundance of of land of workers of army of of accomplishments over long-time enemies of his people of invention cutting-edge technology and his fame spread far and wide now if we view these victories and accomplishments in his in his eye rightly then they are ultimately god's victories It is a testimony of God's work in and through him. But because most of us see these things that he succeeded in as secular or not spiritual, as everyday things, what we can do is sometimes overlook that they're God's victories. Sometimes we're slower to give God credit in things that we identify as practical and not spiritual. Just because you're gifted at something outside the church doesn't mean it's not a gift from God. The gifting a doctor has to diagnose or evaluate rightly. The mechanic's gifted work with his hands. The the teacher's patience to instruct. We have to be careful when we read lists of successes like this in practical everyday ways that might seem to be outside the realm of church work, that we don't dismiss God as not having an instrumental part of them, as if they're not from God or for his glory. My question for you who work in these kinds of jobs is, do you acknowledge God's hand in your work, in your giftedness, in your opportunities to be a bright light of Christ to those lost or in need of an example around you? In society, we see famous people handed trophies for victory or awards for accomplishment. And sometimes we'll hear these people say, I I give all glory to God. And sadly, many who say this say it only because it is a rhetoric that they've learned as part of their upbringing. And in no way is it actually their testimony or their lifestyle. I say this because many who will stand before large audiences to receive, a, receive an award or a trophy are actually receiving the reward or the trophy for something that blatantly offends or dishonors God. And then they say, all oh, glory to God who gave me the ability to do this. So I say that because I'm not looking to teach you this morning just rhetoric to say, let's get better at acknowledging that God has a hand in it. God doesn't want our religious rhetoric. He wants faithful and authentic testimony. My hope is that this is something that you begin to acknowledge more than you currently do in the everyday little workings of life. Throughout your days, and not just when asked, your mindset is recognizing God's hand in all of it. And that you see in every moment just how desperate you are for him. That even your breathing, your standing, your thinking, your hand working, your mind acknowledging, your voice talking is at the sovereign hand of God to continue you to ordain that you are even able to do that. That you don't see yourself somehow as removed and God's over here and look at what I'm doing. How awesome it could be if the people of God had such a better view of his providential and provisional work in our lives than we do. That we could make war with some of the areas where we can really battle. Because we love to be made much of in how we use our minds. Good grades we get or smart solutions we come up with. or Maybe you're good at clever one-liners or, or you have a lot of knowledge about random facts. We love to be made much of in our bodies and being able to work long and hard to get muscular or lose weight and get thin, that that we can really learn to run fast or lift heavy things. We love to be made much of in our successes, in our job position, or the title we hold, or the the contract we secured, or the objective we met, or, or an award our kid won. But Jeremiah 9:23 through 24 speaks to these things specifically thus says the Lord let not the wise boast in his wisdom let not the mighty man boast in his might let not the rich man boast in his riches but let him boast in this that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Jeremiah says, defeat the enemy of pride by making much of God. We need to glory in this alone, that we know God. There is no greater prize I've been given than the fact that I know I'm reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus. If you are inclined to want to boast in your intellect, boast in God's sovereign wisdom. If you're inclined to want to glory in your strength or beauty, boast in God's strength and beauty. If you're inclined to want to brag about your successes, brag on the success of Christ's victory. If God is the one who ordains our victories, why are we the ones who constantly are tempted to feel proud or want the credit? It's important that we see God's hand in all of this. Our assignment, our giftedness, our training, our victories, why so that we don't get proud. This led to Uzziah's great demise. Look with me at verse 16. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. The text goes on to say, we'll read in a moment, that Uzziah's pride and disobedience led him to be stricken with leprosy and be exiled until the day of his death. The sad reality is that pride led to Uzziah's fall. His victories caused him to grow proud, which led to his destruction. Thereby, the title of today's sermon, Pride Comes Before the Fall. We must understand this. Pride is an enemy of God. Pride is evil. Why? Because pride causes man to believe he is worthy of worship and praise. It it focuses on that. But the Bible clearly tells us that man is not worthy of worship and praise. Pride is demonic. It is the essence of the fallen angel who in his pride became a demon. Pride is the chosen weapon of Satan in mankind's demise from day one. It is the core of our folly as a race, the human race. Pride is what caused Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit in a desire to be like God to be elevated. Ever since Eden, pride has been the problem of mankind. It's very core in the root of our sin. But here's the problem. Most of us don't even understand the magnitude of the problem of pride because Satan went into the marketing business and repackaged pride as self-esteem. He taught our culture how to value it and treat it as something good. Feelings to be proud of our accomplishments or those that we love. As a result, we believe self-esteem is a good thing and it's part of how we grow. We read about it, we cling to it, we practice it esteem in oneself, pride in ourselves or those we love. This is sin that causes us to reject God and praise man. The world will say you need to have self-esteem. And I'm here to say today, no, you don't. You need to have esteem in Christ. Your esteem needs not be in yourself, but in Christ. Your identity must be in Christ. Your joy in Christ. Your value in Christ. You're not to live for your own glory, but for His glory. People say, what about self-help? And and all these vehicles that the world loves and these things that were are are normal in our in our modern thinking and and verbiage. And but that's the problem. We can't help ourselves. Self-help is anti-gospel. We need Jesus. It's not self-help, self-esteem, self-actualization that we're desperate for. It is God. It is Christ. It is His grace. It is the gospel. It is God's glory. Pride comes before the fall. We live in a demonically inspired culture that wants to make you and me the center of our own universe. Wants to make your glory... Your feelings, your priorities, your ultimate goal, to turn you loose, to let you go chase after it. Who am I to get in the way? I want you to think that everyone around you really should, should believe in that and believe in you and see how amazing you are. And if you're feeling like, man, pastor, I feel like maybe you're being a little too firm. Like, isn't there something good about pride, right? Like being proud. And if you're feeling that way, I just turn you to God's word. Let me give you three scriptures and then I won't say anything else regarding that. Proverbs 6, 16 and 17, a proud look is an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 15 25, God promises to destroy the house of the proud. Proverbs 21 4, that a haughty look or a proud heart are a sin. Scriptures say that God opposes the proud. I want you to think about that. If you're prideful, God's in opposition to you. What does that mean? To be proud then means to fight God. It says also in Scripture that God gives grace to the humble. And so can I just say, if there's any party that says, man, I feel like I need to fight for pride or pride in my kids. No, you need grace. And to have grace, you need to be humble, not proud. Our prayers need to be, God, I need help. I need a savior. I don't need self-esteem. I need identity in Christ. I don't need to self-actualize. I need to worship you and live for your glory. I need to get out of myself. Lord, I'm addicted to myself in my, in my kingdom. I think about myself and what I want. If I'm honest in my sin, I love myself, and I love all that's mine. We need to confess these things. We need to go before God honestly and, and plea for His holy work on our hearts to bring authentic humility because it's not something you can just turn on and do with hard work if you can even accomplish that to some degree the problem is if it's your essential work in your own life it's another form of self-help and you will be proud for it so do you see as we, as we sweep back over what we've seen so far with Isaiah? God is the one who assigns us to life he gave him a specific call and purpose he prepares and gifts us with what we have to do life and to excel in our own unique ways this was Uzziah's way he is the one in charge of our victories in our lives, like in Uzziah, and he's the one who's then worthy of the praise of the accolades. Humility should be our constant response in the shadow of our great God who is in and through and at work in all things. Humility, gratitude. Romans 11 says it clearly Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, or who has been given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things, therefore to him be the glory forever and ever, Amen. We have a creator that has chosen by his will, his free will, to invite us into his epic story. And it's all about him. Not for one moment is it ever about us. We don't counsel the counselor. We don't tell him how it is. We don't give him anything that's not already his. We must understand that we've arrived onto the scene and it's his story. It's his work. Who are we to even think for one moment that I get to have a part of that spotlight? Like, let's just take this moment and talk about me. It's all about him. We have to get back to this understanding. Because every day we try to make life about us. You're trying to move something that is immovable. Making life very frustrating and very hard. Church, we need to understand our pride. Because our pride leads us away from God. In our pride, we don't think we need him anymore. We stop seeing him as the source How often do we fall into this trap of losing sight of God? And I think one of the big ways we do that is we stop thanking him for all the little things. We lose our gratitude. We lose that sight of how desperate we are for him. And and we, we kind of feel like, look, I'm doing it. We're doing it. How often do you thank Him for everything you have and all that you can do? Or are you guilty of constantly going to Him to say, God, what you've given me, I just feel like is so insufficient? Still not being grateful for who you are and what He's entrusted you with. One of the biggest ways we can combat pride from infecting our hearts and changing the course of our lives is to just remain humble. And thankful in the shadow of our great God. Uzziah had all these things going for him. He's experiencing God's blessing and hand in his life, and yet he makes the critical mistake of taking the credit for himself, of being the big, bad honcho in the moment and doing what God said not to do. In his pride and his arrogance, he stood and practice things he shouldn't. So how do we kill pride and, and live in humility? Three critical things I want to highlight this morning. Number one, we need man's need to draw near to God. Uh, C.J. Mahaney is a, a pastor back east, retired pastor. He says it this way. I think it's really sound. We are proud people pursuing humility by the grace of God. We're desperate for his grace to really, truly be humble. Oh, how desperate for God's grace we are. But there's good news. James 4, 6 and 8. But he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God resist the devil and he will flee from you draw near to God and he will draw near to you are you drawing near to God if your response to this sermon is I'm going to leave this place I'm going to go work to be humble and you go to do that on your own you're missing the point it starts with drawing near to God reminding your heart and your life and your actions and your days who God is and who you are how desperate you are for him The opposite of pride here is submitting to God and drawing near to Him. Pride wants to be independent. It wants to be self-governing. It wants to be autonomous. This is why people who do not love to submit to God's teachings stay far away from God. They, if they come to church and they hear God's Word confront their lifestyle, they'll go away because they want to enjoy calling the shots themselves. But James says that such people should stop going away, stop running and draw near, to stop rebelling and submit. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The way we battle the unbelief of pride is to stop delighting in self-determination and distance from God and start delighting in God and and delighting in God's right and authority to tell you what's best and to want that. Number 2, we we have a desperate need for gospel centered community and accountability. I was given this opportunity, and he utterly threw it away in his pride. Look with me at the next part of the text. We'll read verse 16 again, all the way through 23. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord, who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priest, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. God's command, his teaching, his ways were clear on these things to be done by the priest. And in Uzziah's arrogance, and his mighty throne, his kingship, he's like, no, I'll do whatever I want. Praise God for faithful men who, who will love others even if it means a strain in that relationship. We'll love them in truth. See, these guys could have had great fear of man and not challenged the king. That's sin. Instead, they feared God, and they stood in the truths of God and rebuked the king. Verse 19, Then Ziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense and When he became angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him and beheld he was leprous in his forehead, and they rushed him out quickly. He himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper lived in a separate house for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham his son was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, from the first to the last, Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, wrote, And Uzziah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the burial field that belonged to the kings. For they said, He is a leper. And Jotham his son reigned in his place. So these priests, these these men of valor stood up to him in love, in defense of God. They did not fear man. They did not placate their king. They lovingly confronted him. And we have to see how desperate we too are for this kind of loving accountability, authority, and rebuke. Humble people value the input of others, the challenges of others, the accountability of others, the insight of others. It is one of the most critical attributes to maturity in the kingdom of God. It's not how much you know or how much you've done or how how long you've been doing it. It is a true practice of ongoing humility. Prideful people don't want the input of others. They want to declare where they're at or what they want to do. And then us do it. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16 says, Speak the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. That's what these guys did. They they spoke truth. They did it in love, but they didn't placate. They didn't tell him what he wanted to hear. We, in this, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, In Christ from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint from which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love we need to see how desperate number one we are to draw near to God but number two to draw near to each other and invite others in to hold us accountable to love us and mold us and press us back to Christ and to rebuke us when necessary And finally, we need a a God centered, humble redeemer. Philippians chapter two, five through eleven. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or practised. But being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. See the humility of Christ. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the life of Jesus Christ, we can see a living demonstration of what it means to be humble. He is God in flesh. And humbled himself unto dying in the place of undeserving enemies. That's the the pinnacle of that testimony, but consider all the moments in his fleshly journey, his incarnation by which he modeled humility time and time again. A, a few, just to, to recall, he associated with, with just blue-collar average Joe Fisherman. That was his crew. He drank from the same cup of a mixed-raced woman who was despised by that generation of religious people. Fellowshiped with her and drank with her at the well. He he showed a spirit of humility when entering each city. He would touch unclean bodies of lepers and the tongues of deaf mutes. He cared for the demon-possessed ones who others were so afraid of they wouldn't go near them. He accepted the invitations to eat at the houses of sinners, Pharisees, and hypocrites. He did not avoid any class of person. He he loved women of ill repute who came to him for forgiveness and restoration. He, He was at ease in the presence of the rich and the powerful and in the presence of beggars and the blind. Even though he had all the rights in the universe to be exalted, Jesus models for us humility. Pride says, don't tell me anything, I already know. Humility says, I value your advice and your rebuke. Pride says, I need, I want, I deserve. Humility says, he needs, they want, you deserve. Pride says, God, I'm so much better than my fellow man. Humility says, have mercy on me, a sinner. Pride criticizes others to tear them down. Humility looks for ways to build others up. Pride exalts himself and resists God. Humility humbles himself before God and lifts God up among everyone else. Pride says, I can do all things. I can do it. Humility says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Pride says, I want to be served. Humility says, I did not come to, to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Pride says, look at what I did. And humility says, look at what God did. Pride stood on the streets and shouted, crucify him. And humility hung on a criminal's cross Crying out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Pride seeks the glory, but does not find it. Humility receives glory and honor from God Almighty. Romans twelve sixteen, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Do you like to show deference to other people? Not because you can fake that sometimes, but you really do. You're growing in a a life and a model by which you don't have to have it your way. Are you growing and not having to declare what you know or what you've done or that you have what it takes, but you're willing to, to lift up others and, and to just humble yourself to not be known for what you've done, but just willing to serve and be part of what is to be done. Are you wise in your own eyes? Philippians 2.3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain Conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Do you consider others superior to yourself? Even the lowly, even those that at one point you in your flesh despised. I was blessed by another pastor a few years back who, when when getting to know each other, he said, I, I want to outdo you in showing you honor. And I, it just was a blessing to me because it, it reminded me how I wasn't in tune with that command of the Lord enough with those that God had put around me. And I needed to heed that in my own life. And it was a beautiful moment, the Holy Spirit convicting my soul to say, how, how can I lift up? How can I praise? How can I outdo those around me in showing them honor? So I too have work to do. But what a beautiful thing when we get to see that happen. The difference between pride and humility is the difference between light and darkness. It, it, it's our testimony. Jesus, you've got to understand, is your only hope for humility. You can't just say, I want to do that better. We've got to see that I'm desperate for Jesus, to abide in him, to draw near him, to invite in accountability that the, I would be changed from the inside out. It's much more of a characteristic than it is just an effort. Jesus is your only hope to really see transformation in this area. But here's the good news. Jesus is the one who humbled himself unto flesh, unto ridicule, unto a criminal's cross, so that we who are proud, who wanted God's spotlight for ourselves, could be saved. So that in Christ alone, we could be made new and humbled and then sanctified, transformed from the inside out. Yeah, we need to make war with our pride, but we need to see that it's not just a a to-do or a new-learned rhetoric. we got to cling to Christ alone for salvation. You have to start there. You have to be saved. You have to be set free from your sin that wants to reign, wants to be lord of your own life. Truly trust your life to Jesus that he reigns, that he commands, that he's your joy, he's your hope. What he did in your place sets you free to trust in God and live for him. Second, we got to invite in others. It's not something you can just go do on your own. We got to invite in others, gospel community, to reorient us, to love us enough to speak truth and love, to rebuke us when necessary. Have you done that with the people you're running with? Have, have, maybe you've said it once before. And you're like, hey, yeah, they know. Do they know? Tell them again. I pray you're one of those people in my life. You have free reign to speak truth into my life. Do not avoid it. And number three, we've got to draw near to God in our daily studying of his word and prayer, just abiding in him, abiding in him. So it is true. Pride comes before the fall. I just pray it's not so for us, both as a church and as individuals. That the blessing of 2 Chronicles 26 and Isaiah's testimony given in the written word of God for generations and generations still is moving mightily in our own lives today. Praise God that Christ comes in humility to save us from ourselves, amen? To give us the power and the will to live for His glory and no longer our own. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and space that you've given us to, to study your word, without persecution, without fear of what's on the other side of the wall, Lord, that you've given us the freedom to really consider these truths today, to to know your word, to know your will, your command on us that we would really seek these things. We would really look to put application to today and slow down to really consider important and and consistent steps in our lives that bring real transformation and more than anything we would see and savor you that it would be the overflow of the gospel at work in our lives that brings us to a true place of obedience so that it's not just a religious work that we try to do better and so Lord I just pray that in the singing of this song of blind Bartimaeus and and, and and the testimony of that we can see through this of that we, we, we don't see just because we open our eyes, but that we need you to work upon us. That you are the one who saves us and sets us free. Thereby, we worship you, we boast in you, thereby, we're desperate for you in how this transformation comes about, in this reformation and refining in our lives. And so bless us I ask Lord that you bless us now with just a clearer view of the gospel to be motivated and sent and, and living out of in what is ahead in these things we love you we worship you in Jesus name we pray Amen